Welcome to episode 26 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Today's guest is Jake Hofer. Jake is a passionate whitetail hunter, probably best known for his work with Exodus Outdoor Gear, and is the host of the Land Podcast. In this episode, Jake shares his wealth of knowledge on strategies to maximize the effectiveness of trail cameras. Two quick notes before we jump into the podcast. First, I want to thank everyone out there who has subscribed to my YouTube channel or my podcast on your favorite podcast app. I genuinely appreciate all the support. If you haven't already subscribed, go ahead and double lung that subscribe button right now. And if you enjoy this channel, please share your favorite episode with a friend. It'd mean a lot to me if you did. Second, I want to give a shout out to Uncle Lou at Stealth Outdoors for helping to make this podcast possible. Check out Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. September openers are just around the corner, and now is your last chance to outfit your gear with the number one silencing solution on the market. If your gear isn't already sporting stealth strips, what are you waiting for? Thousands of satisfied hunters have silenced their gear using the products from Stealth Outdoors. Designed from the ground up with the mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Don't let unwanted noise get you busted this season. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and to place an order today. Now, on to the podcast. All right, on today's show, we got Jake Hofer from Exodus Outdoor Gear, the Land Podcast. And Jake, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I'm pumped for this. Yeah. So today, we're just going to dive deep into some trail camera strategy and tactics and topics. So first question I got. For you, Jake, for people that aren't already familiar with you, could you tell my audience how you got into hunting first, the trail camera business, and now the real estate and land sales? Yeah, so I grew up in a hunting household, to say lightly. Um, my dad's been crazy about whitetails forever. Um, I I think some of, like literally some of my earliest memories that I can have is in association to deer in some form or fashion. Um, I remember him pulling me up, like literally, uh, how you would pull up a bow, um, obviously <laughs> not advisable. I would not do that with my kid, but, but that's, uh, that's kind of how I got into hunting. I grew up on a deer farm and I've just always really, um, I've always just really like like deer. And I guess how I got into the trail camera business in some form or fashion is a, a product of that, um, kind of throughout college, I had a variety of projects that were kind of going on. Uh, I wrote for a website called uh, Wide Open Spaces, which is a really big website at the time and uh, was interviewing different new companies and products. And also, I mean, admittedly, I did some clickbait articles too, as anyone would when you're sure. getting paid, paid per view. And so, but something that caught my eye initially was I saw Exodus kind of start their pre-order sale. So it was kind of like a Kickstarter, but not actually on Kickstarter. And I saw their value proposition of a five-year warranty. And then they were also um, guaranteeing their cameras if they were stolen or damaged within those first five years, you could fix or replace them. And I was 50% off. I was like, wow, that is crazy. So I actually reached out to them, um, kind of sent all the analytics and did an interview with them and then stayed in touch there. That was my junior year of college. And then I needed a internship to graduate my senior year. And I was at the ATA show through Wide Open Spaces. And I was like, "Hey, listen, guys, I don't, I don't care if you pay me. I don't really. This, I want to work for you guys. This uh, to to graduate." And I said, "Hopefully, if there's any impact that I have on the business, there'll be a, a job down the road." And uh, thankfully, made an impact. And then uh, was one of their was their first employee. And then uh, as things kind of progressed and, and leadership changed, I was able to buy a good chunk of the company. And uh, <clears throat> that's been a little over five years ago, maybe six years ago now. So that that's how I got into that. And then uh, my senior year. Of college, I also got my real estate license. I always really loved land. Um, don't come from a family that owns a bunch of land or anything else like that, but I just thought it was so cool. And the idea of owning land uh, was something I really wanted. And I was like, well, one of the best ways to learn business is just uh, jump head first. <laughs> and that's what I did. Yeah. It seems like that's the best way to learn anything is just get involved. There's nothing that beats experience. Yeah, exactly. And I, I remember people being like, um, you know, like, well, why would anyone want to do business with you? I was like, well, I have nothing else going on. So like, if you're going to get my full utmost attention, I don't want to screw up. So like you couldn't have someone more dedicated to you uh, on some of those first deals. So that's how I got started. And um, they all, they, all of them intertwine really well. So I've been really fortunate for that because they all, they all really kind of complement each other. Yeah, it's great, man. seems like you guys have been killing it over there, especially the last couple of years. I know your land podcast has really taken off and I've seen Exodus everywhere in the feed. So 
guys are doing a great job marketing and I know you're in charge of the marketing. So a lot of that's a direct result of you. So nice work. Appreciate that. Yeah. It's uh, I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot of come a long ways <laughs> and I, I look forward to getting better every day. So you mentioned there that you grew up on a deer farm and I wanted to touch on that. I've seen that in some of your other interviews. Did you learn anything from captive deer that it's carried over into hunting wild deer? Quite a bit. Um, I tell you this, one thing I, I took for granted, we had some really big deer at the time. So this is like before the deer farming business exploded. Now there's like 300 some inch deer. This was before all that too. So I remember looking out in my backyard and seeing like a clean eight point 160 inch deer and just not thinking that's ultra rare. And so that was just something that I have come to appreciate much more as I get older. And I look at the sheds from our farm and I'm like, oh my gosh, this deer's a giant. Um, yeah. And so that was something, I guess, an appreciation of uh, how much it takes. I mean, those deer were, were captive and had every bit of stress that we could control eliminated. And they were still like to have a 180 was was really special. And um, so that was really interesting to how hard it is for a big deer to get big. That's one thing. The other thing was just how deer behave on an annual basis. Um, we had some does that we had for a really long time. Like they would go into estrus almost the same time every single year, which obviously goes into <clears throat> some of the theories in terms of like how bucks and deer behave year after year. So I kind of got to see that. And the other interesting thing too was it was a litmus test of looking out in the yard and seeing what the deer were doing in the backyard. Because like when they were pacing the fence, like trying like, okay, well, things are going on right now. And then when the weather's kind of crappy and it wouldn't be an ideal day to hunt, like they're all, they're all bedded up. You know, so this kind of to see that was was pretty interesting, and there usually was a pretty pretty good correlation. Yeah, on site lab, hard to beat that. Literally, yeah, yeah, and yeah. one of those things just take for granted. I wish, I wish uh, they don't have deer anymore, but like sometimes, like man, it'd be kind of nice if they still had them for that reason. <laughs> sure, sure. Check the activity. Look out the back window. What's going Ex on? Out there? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into the trail cameras. Uh, first thing I want to talk about with you is let's discuss conventional versus cellular cams. If buzz budget wasn't an issue. Would it be in hunter's best interest to only run cell cameras and why or why not? Oh man, that's a great question because I go back and forth on this a lot. So I still run a lot of conventional cameras. And I run a good amount of cell cameras as well. I would say, you know, like if budget was an issue, I would say cell cameras. Yes, because you can run those as a regular camera when they're not connected to um, a data plan. So right now I'm running some of those cell cameras just basically, if you're not familiar with their lineup, the Lift 2. So that's essentially the same camera. So I'm running those on video right now in the summer because I notice when I'm running cell cameras and then I often have more intrusion because I want to go in and like, ah, oh, that leaf grew up and now it's I'm getting a million false triggers where if it's a traditional camera, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. You're just going to buzz through them anyhow. So that's something. But I mean, in terms of best interest, I think a cell camera is so powerful and you're crazy not to utilize them, but there's still certainly a place for, um, conventional, conventional cameras. Well, let's talk about that as a, a follow on question for conventional cameras. What's the best use case in your opinion? Conventional camera, best use case. I would say it's that to me is like a true scouting camera, I guess it's kind of like the best way to say. It. So I use a lot of those to soak. So areas that, you know, I'm curious what deer are in the area and it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. And I just put them out there to see what kind of like, usually I hang cameras on public and I just want to see what's going on from an activity of other hunters, what deer are in the area and when those areas are hot, because where I'm at in Illinois, a lot of, a lot of the habitat is only good for a certain part of the year too. So like some habitat is awesome late October. And after that, I mean, obviously during the rut, there's wild cards, but like in maybe awesome in October, but it may be trash in December. So to get an idea of what farms are good at certain times of the year, I think is a really good way with the conventional camera. When you get that coming through your feed on a cell camera, you don't make those connections because it's in real time as you're getting that information and you're not like, Oh man, I, you don't really realize what's going on. So that's something that I think, um, that I notice. All right. That's uh, one part of your sponsor, a perfect segue into the next question, which is a lot of your content. I see you guys advocate in video mode, video mode, Tell me why you're such a big fan of video. It's so powerful. Um, so I've learned so much more just from running video than than pictures. And every single lift you I have is on video mode year round, no matter what. And a lot of it, you can see the demeanor of deer and how they interact. And also you get so much more information of where they relaxed when they're going through there and like just chilling out. And, you know, I use most of my cameras on 25 uh, second length too. So you can really get an idea of what's going on there. Where if it's a static picture, it may look like he was, you know, kind of relaxed in the picture, but in reality, he just cruised right through there and that was the end of it. So 
you can just get so many little nuances that I think are really powerful to trying to piece something together. Um, in terms of like an actual use case, I shot a deer 2019, I think it was, and it was a really old deer. And I did not realize the year before he was, he was a stud and then he went downhill drastically, but he was very timid. It looked like he was shy and did not want to mess with any other deer. And, uh, I actually bleeded that deer in, in early November. And I, most people were like, Oh, it's an old gnarly buck hit him, hit him with an aggressive grunt, challenge him, all this different stuff where I just literally tried to entice him in. And that was one of the first deer I successfully called in. And I really attribute that to, um, videos because I didn't, it wasn't a really long interaction in the sense of like, I could see that he was all beat up. I just knew that already from the videos prior. And then another, the other thing too, you just get a better look at their antlers. Like, Oh man, does he have a split or is it, you just, you get so much more information. Yeah. I I know from in the past, there's so many times where I have one photo of a deer and you wish it was a video because you'd like to see some more angles. Like you said, pick out what's exactly going on there. And I grew up in Michigan. So, so many deer are two or three year old eight points. Right. And they start to all look alike. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> having a video might help differentiate them. Yeah. That's, so. that's a great point. Yeah. I just, and also I'm just, I like watching deer videos too. I just, I thoroughly enjoy that more. If uh, you know, like, I, I haven't coined a phrase or anything, but like, a picture's worth a thousand words, and like, what's a twenty-five second video of a buck worth? Sure, sure. Well, kind of along the uh, conventional versus cell cam. Is there ever a case where you'd be an advocate for photos over videos, or no? I really, um, not really, honestly, because I even soak my cameras on video mode. People are like, well, you know, it's going to fill up the card and it's going to eat the battery if it's good set. I mean, I can soak a full camera for a full year. I, I shouldn't say a full year, but let's say late September to the end of the season. I mean, I, I'll put out a lift two on video mode for that entire time, and, and it'll take a video of me walking up to it. What uh, I'm assuming you're running lithium batteries always, and what size card if you're running uh, um, that long is so? Uh, 30, 32 gigs. I mean, a lot of times, and they're not, and when you're doing a soak like that too, it's not like in a high traffic area where you're going to be getting a ton of, uh, it's not like over destination food source at night. Like that's not where you're going to soak a camera like that. Um, so that's usually what I do. And, uh, the only, I guess the only instance where a photo makes more sense is a cell camera because, uh, it's really expensive to send data right now. So it, it just, it's not practical to, to run them on video in, in my opinion. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to move on to a few scenario based questions here. And I think these are going to cover probably most of the hunters that are going to be listening to, to my podcast. So scenario one, you're a new hunter, you're young and you're not very experienced. You've never run a trail camera. Okay. So it's your mm -hmm. first season. Your budget allows only one conventional trail camera. How are you going to use that throughout the year? And what kind of knowledge are you hoping to gain? I love that scenario because I've been there. I've been the guy sure. with one camera right? and that's all I can afford. And that's all I can do. And my answer would change from, what I would have, what I did versus what I would do now. So right now, if I had one camera, I would get one in my budget can only afford one. I would get the most reliable camera I could afford. So that would be the, the first thing. Cause this is, this is all your eggs in one basket. So that would be the first thing in terms of use case. I would, I really believe a good community scrape is going to give you all the Intel you need on a farm for an entire year. So, I mean, that's what I would do now. Back then, what I did is I put it on a random trail that I felt lucky. And like looking back, that's not the best use. <laughs> but sure. you, you have to start somewhere and you have to learn. And that's where I'm really fortunate. I run a ton of cameras and I've I've learned that progression through mistakes over time because I was not very efficient. And by having more cameras too, I've been able to figure out what what is the most efficient way. And I can dial back my cameras on certain farms as I, you know, kind of figure them out or at least think I figure them out. <laughs> yeah, and that's why we're here. We're trying to leverage your experience. So <laughs> That's yeah. a that's a great piece of advice. If you got one camera or two cameras, put them on a scrape. So yeah, and, I, and I'd I'll, agree with that. Yeah, and to add to that too, for someone that maybe doesn't know what uh, what I mean by community scrape, so the best way I think to identify those is postseason scouting. And so a lot of times they're adjacent, close to a primary bedding area, and that's one of the you know like sometimes there's one that it is on a field edge of community scrape that gets hit year round because there's not a lot of habitat in the area, and the best habitat is adjacent to of large ag field. So that's one example, but it's usually this association to any primary bedding area that gets used year round and you can really identify them late season. <clears throat> and even, even, um, you know, like this time of year or even September where you start to see some of these like actual star getting pawings, a lot of times that early 
that's usually a good indication that that's a, a place to put your camera. Yeah, for sure. And in the uh, licking branch, it seems like the best grapes that I've always found, not only do they have a, uh, a big looking branch, it seems like it's got a lot of ends on it. Yeah. And the, you know, the more ends, like an apple tree, for example, where you might have 10 branches overhanging, it seems like those are the ones that get real big and real pounded. Yeah, that's a good example too. Yeah, because you, you can identify stuff like a tree that has, you can see it's been snapped or worked year after year after year after year. And that's another good example. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's move on to scenario two. So scenario two, this is probably what I would say is common to, to most people. Your budget allows for maybe one or two cell cams, four or five conventional cameras. What are you doing with those cameras? And what are you trying to learn? How are you, you going to move them around if you're going to move them around? <clears throat> yeah, so actually this Friday, I made a spreadsheet of all the, the farms I, I hunt or pieces of public that I plan on putting cameras. And I have a, I ironically have a standard column and I have a cell camera column because I'm trying to do that exact same thing you're talking about. And what I would typically do is the standard cameras in with four or five of them, I'm probably going to, and depending on the parcel, I'm probably going to dedicate half of those, like two or three of them to a full season soak on it. So a little bit further back. And I'm just curious, I'm just here to learn. I'm going to hunt this farm even next year, year after that, year after that. So I'm dedicating some of those to long-term data. And then the remaining two, I'm probably going to put on an area that is not very intrusive and probably on a food source of some ability to where I'm not leaving a lot of ground scent to go check that, but I can check it on the fly or it's in coordination to a stand that I plan on hunting. Um, that's in some, you know, remote, it's, it's along the way. I don't have to go out of the way. I don't have to poke another 40 yards in, uh, to, to add more disturbance, but that's how I'm probably going to use most of those conventional cameras. And, uh, I would say that should have your bases covered on kind of multiple fronts as just extra eyes for that season. And then also soaking for later on. And honestly, during the rut too, if there's a heavy, a heavy rainstorm and you have time and you can go out and you can kind of slip around, I don't think you're going to do too much harm to do that. Um, in most applications for, for most people, the cell cameras, I would, if you know where that community scrape is on the farm or the parcel, I'm putting a cell camera on lithium batteries and a solar panel, and I'm taking the time to hang that like a tree stand. I'm talking, thinking about everything because you don't want to go in and intrude that again, but that will probably give you the intel that you need for that entire season in terms of activity, how hot the farm is, and uh, what bucks are showing up in velvet when they show back up hard horned or you know, just an idea what's going on in that area. That to me... If I only have one, it's going on the community scrape and I'm, I'm using that with a lot of, uh, um, intent. And the other one, if I have another cell camera to float around, I would maybe hold on to that. And if you are, if you're just kind of curious, like, okay, well, kind of a floater as a, a curiosity thing, it would be, that would be my strategy. And that's the strategy I use. Yeah. It's, that's exactly what I usually do. Cause like I said, I have that spreadsheet and I, I have a limited amount of cameras. Lithium batteries are super expensive. So it's yeah. like trying to be really thoughtful with what I'm doing. Sure. Sure. All right. Then that's one, a lot of great tips there. And so I appreciate that. And I think what you said makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I've run cameras on scrapes. I haven't run, actually, I haven't, this funny, I haven't run cameras since I moved to Montana. So we're not super acquainted, but I moved to Montana like three and a half years ago. Oh, and wow. just because some of the areas I hunt are so far away. And I don't know if you're familiar with Montana's block management program, but block management is private lands that are enrolled for public hunting access. Well, those are only open during the season. So if you want to put a camera out in the summer, you can't. And then, you know, once the season's open, you got to worry more about people seeing them or theft and all that stuff. So for a variety of reasons, I just haven't run cameras. I still have like 10 or 12 cameras, but I haven't put one out. But mm -hmm. anyways, um, when I did run cameras, the, the scrape tips, especially, and uh, I do like the idea of prospecting the cell cam and in areas that you want in-season intel, but you're not real sure about it. I like that tip for sure too. Mm -hmm. And so my final scenario for you is you've got an unlimited budget and all the premium properties in the world. What are you doing? Are you, are you deploying your cams yeah. right over beds, every food source, every, what are you doing in that scenario, this ideal world? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've kind of, this is, so I, this is what I, I've done in the past. Like, let's say I get access to a farm like right now, August, July, whatever the case may be. And I literally go in and I shotgun that farm with cameras everywhere. I mean, it's almost, it's honestly embarrassing. People have seen my Onyx and like, you have that many cameras right there. Yeah, I do. And uh, <laughs> it's because it's I'm trying to learn as fast as possible. And um, in terms of the cell cameras, I'm floating those. I'll probably have one. I would have one in my pack at all times and I would throw it up 
let it float. And uh, <clears throat> the the challenge is though, because to what harm are you doing to know what's going on in terms of intrusion and everything else? Because I don't hunt like I don't have a, a 500 acre farm. I don't have a hundred acre farm. Like it's a lot of these are still smaller parcels, so it's easy to do a lot of damage to them. And uh, but I, I would just I would just shotgun that thing and I would try to learn as much as possible in hopes of next year having a better plan. And that's that's what I've done. And it's so crazy of how how often things can be so eerily similar the year after or how drastically different they can be with crop rotations or the CRP gets mowed. And that's something I've learned pretty quickly. Yeah. And that's something I want to definitely cover and dive into a little deeper later on in podcast is annual pattern. So that's on the agenda for sure. Sure. Yeah. And I, I'm just trying to think in terms of uh, just the dreamland scenario. I'm, I'm probably, I'm, I'm probably overkill and just hanging cameras everywhere. Just, it's it just, it's crazy how you do get some of those floater bucks that I think you would never know existed. Um, an example is one, I got, I got a parcel. Um, I leased it. I lucked out and it was in I think June or July. I did not know anything about this area. I just knew I just got, I just got the vibe. This is going to be good. And I had a camera on uh, like for the video here. Like I have a, a camera on this fence post, a camera on this fence post and a camera down here on this end. <laughs> and I got a giant deer on camera on the other end of the farm. And I never got any daylight uh, pictures or videos of, of him for a while. And then on this one random camera, I had it on video mode too. Here comes a doe. It's November 3rd. Here comes a doe booking it. And it triggers this one camera that was a trek on picture mode. So it just got a picture of the doe. And that was it. On this one that's running a video mode for 25 seconds, doe. And here comes this 190 barreling down, chasing that doe on November 3rd. And that was the only, that deer got killed. And, you know, I really had probably zero chance of killing that deer. He did not spend much time on there. But point being is if I was not borderline psychotic with the amount of cameras I had in the area, <laughs> I would have never known that. And yeah. uh, what does that really help me? I don't know, but at least I got a cool video of him. Yeah. Well, I mean, and to me, this is me. If I know a buck like that, I even have a chance of seeing something that special, you know, a 190. That's a once in a lifetime buck for, I don't care where you live for anybody. Yep. You know, you might want to put a little more effort into that parcel than you would have otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, hindsight, it, what sucks though is I hunted that stand dark to dark November 2nd and I was like, oh, it's dead out here. And then I went and hunted a different uh, farm and I was like, oh, he was here. Dang it. And that's kind of yeah. the, the double edged sort of cameras that it can leave you uh, like, a step behind the entire season because you're you're just hunting the past the entire time that is the one thing that i don't miss about cameras is oh man i was in the wrong spot on this day yeah <laughs> ignorance is bliss sometimes for sure yeah for sure for sure so well, let's talk about um elevating cameras so i hang around dan and Falls hunting beast farm a lot i've been a member on there for a long time and a lot of people on there like to hang their camera in an elevated position and the idea is to one, help deter thieves, two, possibly keep from alerting deer. So I'd like to know your opinion on that. And specifically, does it matter with a black flash or no flash? Um, do you think that you're educating or spooking the deer with those cameras? Or are you elevating? Why or why not? Man, I do on some of them for sure. Um, I go I go back and forth on this because it is definitely, I think you get more pure intel because the deer does not know that camera's there and it's it's, you know, you don't, they just don't know the cameras there, which is really solid. However, you usually limit the detection zone of the camera. You usually don't have as good as pictures and videos of the, of the deer and all these different things. Now, if I have it kind of waist high or like that traditional, like how most people hang their cameras, I do try to figure out a way to like, if it's on a multi-trunk tree and like tuck it back. And I try to try to be pretty careful with how I hang those but there's also some I hang pretty haphazardly um, in the heat of the moment of flying around. Like I'll just throw up a camera here. And so I'm running them on video. There's definitely times where you can tell there's negative implications of having that camera within eyesight. Now, if you're hunting in an area that we're, I was just in Iowa um, a couple weekends ago and we hung some cameras on a, on a private farm and we hung them all like, like, you know, exactly like waist high, way out in the open on a fence post. I really don't know how much of a difference that'll make because the pressure is so much different than what you experienced in Michigan, I'm sure. Sure. You would definitely want to hang them. So I think it's a little bit dependent and it's even dependent on some of the farms I hunt. But in best case scenario, like best use case, it is better to have your cameras undetected by people and also wildlife. Because also if you're sharing a parcel or hunting public and you have someone see a, sees a camera and they're 
I mean, regardless of like, well, if he has a camera here, it must be pretty good. And, you know, like all these different things. And I feel like it just attracts more riffraff, more pressure and everything else. So out of sight, out of mind, I think is the best, best case scenario for everything, but it does have some drawbacks. Yeah. I actually had an Iowa tag last year and I found, man, probably at least 10 cell cams out last year. Oh, really? Did you have yeah. public out there? I did. Yep. What, uh, do you mind what Sharon was on was? I was in zone five. Okay, that's uh, that's what I I put in for this year. I didn't draw, uh, okay. So I should hopefully draw next year on on five points. Yeah, I uh, I started applying a long time ago, like even pre THP, and so I'd been buying points since like 2015. And then wow. I moved to Montana. I had points to draw two years ago. I actually drew last year with six. So I was. One <laughs> You're of those the reason guys. I didn't draw. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say I was one of those guys monkeying up the works, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I just had other things going on, and I I just couldn't get. It. I ended up going by myself because I didn't know anyone else that had any points, and uh, I had a good hunt, and I ended up shooting like a 120, which is not great for Iowa. Hey, but it sounded uh, like it was a fun hunt. No, it was, and man, I tell you what, there are some giant deer there, and unfortunately, I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast. Maybe I have, maybe I have, but the second day I was there. I love hunting from the ground, kind of unconventional there. And I've got one of those uh, ultimate predator stalker decoys. You ever see those? Yeah. It's like the shoot through hole, the yeah. 2D decoy. So I rattled in probably like a mid 130s buck the second day. And he came in and I didn't want to peek around the decoy to range again. And I thought I had a good range on him while well, he was six yards closer than I thought. And I ended up hitting him high, you know, mm. the, the no man's land. So should have had a good one. And stalking around on the ground I, I blew it on what for sure was probably 150 inch eight point so Ooh. i had so, i had some good encounters so they're there Dude, and i've seen cool. two of the biggest deer i've ever seen in my life um while scouting on public land too yeah. but just you know couldn't close the deal so yeah i had that's, a fun hunt saw a lot of deer ended up what, getting one but that's that's yeah. what brings you to iowa right there those heavy eights yeah they're, they're built different there <laughs> yeah exactly so it, it was great but um anyway so getting back to the to hanging them high you guys, you obviously run a ton of trail cameras. You're running on public, and you've talked to a ton of people, obviously that that run trail cameras. Do you have any good anti theft tips? Um, yeah, I mean, out of sight, out of mind is like the number one. Like they can't steal it if they don't know it. It's there. That's probably the first thing I would say. Hanging them high, hanging them, just hanging them kind of sneaky. Meaning, out, like I even like mimic, like okay, I'm walking. I'm just a regular old guy. Like even on like, a like on a rolling hill, let's say. You know, anyone that walks up on top of the hill is going to look everywhere out in front of them. So, like, even just on the backside of that, you can usually have um, a, a better likelihood of them not getting seen because they're looking at everything else. So, like, I always try to think of those types of things in terms of, you know, something that probably no one else has already thought of. I really don't have anything, but I think just think creatively, think objectively, think if you were a thief, where would you be looking? And obviously, I tell you what, I had one camera stolen on public, and I, it was an area that I had. It's, it's an area that is really good and it's the only place i've ever had cameras tampered with or stolen and i hung one in such a dense spot on a stick like i'm talking uh, probably 10 12 feet tall really really just like there's no way someone's gonna steal this camera i went back it was gone and i was like i was like was this oh, their geez. stand they, they were gonna climb to hunt out of because that is the only like it, it behooved me and i was like well there is no i don't know what else to do um so i just vacated that area because like I'm, I'm over it but um i guess that's just thieves are pretty creative yeah and the one thing i learned from hunting michigan and hunting michigan public land is and i i wore waders often scouting right so i'm like oh i'm past all the guys in rubber boots and i can't tell you how many times i'd get out to a secluded island where i waded through waist deep water and there was old screwing steps or there was a uh illegal tree stand there and it just reminded me like People are everywhere. It's hard yeah. to get away from the pressure on, on public land anywhere these days. Yeah. And especially in Michigan. I mean, like, I feel like, yeah, uh, if, if you can have your cameras not stolen in Michigan, you're, you, <laughs> you got something figured out or at least tampered with, yeah. or I, I don't know if there's a, I haven't hunted Michigan. I don't, it's not on the top of my list to go either, to be completely honest. Not of most people's. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, I, it's, it's challenging and, uh, a lockbox can go a long way. I don't really use those. I think the Python cables can help deter someone too. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, uh, well, actually, I'll bring up another point. So this is, uh, this is I can't take credit for this. Uh, Josh Prophet, he runs a ton of our cameras uh, in Kentucky. 
And what he does is he buys these cheap little antennas off eBay and he super glues them on top of a regular camera. And so it looks like a cell camera, but it's not a cell camera. And so it takes serious guts. Yeah. To steal a cell camera. It's not though. It's a regular camera and he super glues that on there. That would be a hot tip for sure. Sure. And the only one I've got that I've heard of, uh, that, that I've used and that seems to work good is a lot of people get rid of the strap and they use camo paracord. Because yeah, it's that's way good harder to see. Yeah, the strap's usually the usually what people see for sure. That's a um, that's a great point. I want to take a break to mention huntingbeastgear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault. Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting edge products including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick beast gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps all in a 2.2 pound package including the fastening strap huntingbeastgear.com has also released the game-changing beast gear hang-on tree stand designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution with four years of prototyping testing and refinement the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com today. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah. So let's talk about scent control. Now, myself personally, I'm not a big scent control guy. I don't practice it religiously. I do think there's some merits to it, but I'm a bigger guy. I sweat a lot and I hike a lot when I hunt out here. So I just, I don't do it. Mm-hmm. So are you taking any scent control measures while you're hanging cameras? If not, do you think there's a lag time? Like when you hang a camera, let's say you're not using any scent control at all. Is there a lag time between when you deploy that camera and a return to normal activity in your opinion? Great question. So I really don't have much strategy in terms of that like during closer to deer season i probably will rubber wear rubber boots um when hanging cameras and things of that nature um it's not like i'm taking a decent shower and like trying to go like i see people that spray their cameras down and they use like hand wipes i'm not that guy and maybe i'm missing something but i'm not that guy but in terms of going in to check a standard camera and i have a bad wind and i'm just gonna blow my scent all into their bedding area just to check a camera i i don't do that i used to do that but I just try to be, I think I've gotten a little bit more disciplined um, as the more mistakes I've made, like risk risk versus reward. And then in terms of uh, area coming back to normal, I think there's probably some merit to that as well. One thing that I, this always cracks me up and it's like, oh, I hung a cell camera and first picture was a big buck. And I was like, well, probably because you poked into his an area and then you left. And then at night or right, right at dusk, he got up to go investigate what that was. And he goes exactly. and smells it. And it's like, well, yeah, it's cool. You got a picture of him, but now he knows he's being hunted and i i yeah. see that all the time like oh i got him first night and i was like that's not necessarily good right that's when your son's freshest on the camera in that area too yep yeah but i mean at the end of the day i think sometimes we give too much credit to the deer as well so i mean i'm i'm probably more uh more of a moderate on that topic i'm not like throw everything to the wind and forget about it but i'm also not um you know like surgical gloves and all that garbage either. sure sure all right. Well, in some of our uh, previous questions here, we talked about hanging cameras over primary scrapes. And you guys, if people haven't already seen your videos on uh, Exodus Outdoors, that's a great resource. And you guys talk a lot about scrape week. And I think that's a, a, a topic that's super important to me too. So give me your definition. What is scrape week? Man, scrape week was something that uh, I was really pumped to, to push as a, a campaign for us. And it's not it's not like a sales campaign or anything. It, to me, this is just from running a lot of cameras and a lot of different farms. And there was this always this time frame of when bucks, like the most mature bucks were up and checking scrapes over a certain amount of time. And that was roughly the 22nd to the, let's just say the end of October, like October 31st. That was the money time of these top caliber animals checking scrapes. I was like, well, number one, most people are waiting until the first of November to start getting really aggressive. And so what we did is we went out and I, I talked to everyone that has a lot of success hunting scrapes and picked their brain and kind of find, find, uh, uh, tweak what I was doing as well. And so a lot of those are just on a primary scrape 
community scrape that was identified previously and you have a camera on there and it's usually an association of bedding and you can monitor what does are checking that out and what bucks are coming in. And, uh, I, I just love that last week of October. And I think it is the best time to kill a giant mature buck. So when you're placing your cameras on these scrapes and we talked about cell cams specifically on community scrapes, what are you doing to gather the most Intel and, you, you know, you mentioned that time frame, October 22nd to the 29th. Are you just gathering inventory at that point still? Are you looking for something on the cell cam to allow you to move in for a hunt? How are you utilizing those? Um, so some of it's historical. So let's say um, here's a here's a buck I screwed up on. So the year before, it was the 23rd, 24th. He was in there two nights in a row, like right at gray light, and it was an association of dose. And so the following year, I tried to get aggressive, and I did the decoy thing. And, uh, sure enough, I was set up on a, so trying to explain this. So it was like a ditch that came out into a field and that deer could go North or it could go South. I was set up on the North side in association to the annual date of the previous year, unfortunately. So this was, it's a two night story. So the, that first night I'm set up, I did not have a decoy that night. I had a, I set up a line, a makeshift line. I was set up and unfortunately I had a cell camera on the scrape further down. And there was two different scrapes that he could have went and hit. I went to the one he went the year before. Uh, on that same date and it was october 23rd i was set up and i'm sitting there and it was a no show and i saw some deer off in the distance and and then sure enough bing my phone goes off he was 100 <laughs> he was 100 yards down on the next scrape over yeah. and i was like damn it you know like <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, and so then the next night i was like all right he was in there two nights in a row last year um not a deer that was you know it was like he was there and then he was there later in november it wasn't a deer that was there all the time and then so october 24th i went and set up in there it was an old burly buck set up a decoy and uh the does got bugged out by it and freaked out and then that was the end of it so i mean that that's just an example of using the historical data to go in and know what an area where an area we should be spending some time another one is uh um there was this would have been like the it's almost like in two year uh tandems of like how these typically work there was another deer it was a ginormous eight pointer and uh October 23rd, ironically, he showed up the year before and I was like, all right, I'm going to be set up October 23rd. And then I ended up, it was a, a shifty wind. I went and hunted a different farm and I went back and checked this. It was not a cell camera. And sure enough, he was in there the same, like almost the same exact time, same exact. And it's just like son of a gun. I probably wouldn't have been able to kill him because I wasn't, it was a, it was a tiny farm. I just couldn't hunt on that wind uh, effectively. I would have got busted, I'm sure. And so I'm just setting up on those primary scrapes with the wind to my advantage. And uh, honestly, as a Michigan guy, like John Eberhardt, we've interviewed him on this topic and he's killed. I don't know how many of his Pope and young bucks on a scrape in the end of October. And like, if there's someone he can speak way more volumes than me, I don't have the um, amount of decorative uh, success as him, but that's basically the adopted strategy. Sure. Sure. Well, I want to, I want to circle back to two things you said there. And uh, ties into the Iowa hunt. The biggest deer that I saw. So I went to Iowa. Um, I planned on going around Halloween. So I went the weekend before because I was just super busy at work last year, and I was on on some elk. So I hunted elk in in Montana. Nice. Um, so I didn't I didn't get to do a pre October scouting trip like I'd hoped. So I went October twenty second, and one of the biggest deer that I saw the entire trip was daylighting. I saw him glassing in the evening on October twenty second, probably a mid 170s buck i mean a, a little literal giant yeah and uh he come off a piece of private cross the road and went into public and then i'd already you know the next day i'd already planned to scout that piece well you bet you you, you can bet that i <laughs> scouted it real hard after that yeah, <laughs> yeah but anyways one of the points i wanted to bring up is i don't know if you follow the uh penn state's got their deer blog um loosely i don't tune in all the time but yeah what would you find out from them well one of the the things that they bring up there because they do um, like post-mortem backdating of fetuses to, to tune in on conception date. And they say that by the end of October, so it's got to start sometime before the end of October, 20% of does are bred. Yeah. So in my opinion, and, and I think it ties into scrapes that those, like you said, those top end animals, they're cruising that last week pretty hard, not necessarily cruising. I, I don't think that's the right word in my, they're in their opinion, nucleus still, but more aggressively. <laughs> exactly and i th i think you're on to something like if if you have one of those bucks already located prior to then and, and is you know because i feel like they tighten up their core area kind of mid-october if you know where one's at and you know where there's a primary scrape in the area like that it's that is the time to be on them 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's easier said than done. Like I can tell you where a deer might be, but I'm not. I'm not some amazing deer hunter, so I'm not even going to pretend to be one. But I can tell you where they where they should be. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, same. We're all trying to learn here, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I guess I want to close this topic up. What have you learned, um, either through your own running your own trail cameras or through talking to all these different hunters on Exodus? What have you learned, and how do you think you can most effectively hunt scrapes during that that week? I think you hit it there. Like if you know of a deer, it, it, it like you can build a case almost on, and a lot of these are just such small windows on some, like the one, the one farm with eight acres, the one with the eight pointer, like, Oh wow. Deer, yeah. Tiny like that. And it was a permission parcel. And so, yeah, I'm sure that deer spent a ton of time in that 80 or that 120, but I only had eight acres to play on. And so that's where it's like, I was so focused on that because that's all I had uh, available. And that was that time frame. So then I just try to hone in on, uh, even even farms that are a little bit bigger and let's say it's 45 acres or 40 acres or 60 acres they're still going to be the best like two acres four acres five acres of that with that community scrape so like that's just how i try to like really focus in on what those are and obviously uh, time postseason scouting and trail cameras are going to help you qualify that and as you kind of I've seen enough of them and now I feel like I can get a pretty good idea of like, okay, this would be a really good, honestly, this is actually a really funny story. So we were, um, Chad and Cameron drew in Iowa and we were scouting in March and we uh, scouted this piece of public in Iowa and it's, it's March, there's snow on the ground. But so we walked this entire parcel, it's kind of swampy and there's a really good transition on one spot. And we hung a camera on this specific scrape and, uh, ironically Cameron talked to a guy that hunted that piece of public the year before and shot a 160 on that scrape that we hung a camera on the following wow. year and they gave me crap like oh yeah like like nice like they were kind of giving me shit to be completely honest and it's like yeah. this is it man like I've seen like I like this is one I would I would put my chips on that there's gonna be a big deer at the end of October and that was I uh, that happened the year before and we didn't know. And we were able to qualify that through how, you know, like the world's a lot smaller than what we realized in terms of like, once we start producing content, talking to other people, sure. but that is just like an example of like, once you start getting an idea, going in and killing one is a whole different story, but the more reps you get, the more you can qualify a scrape and then everything else kind of comes down the road. Yeah. Well, then I think that's a, just a great point in deer hunting in general, right? There, and I said it early on, no replacement for experience. I mean, the more time you spend in the woods, the more you're on cameras, the more data you gather this mm -hmm. you can't help but get better if you're trying 100 percent. yeah well let's talk about actually pulling cards or you know on conventional cameras or getting those trail camera pictures on a cell cam when you're reviewing those are you swapping your cards in the field you're reviewing at home you're doing something else and what when you do that what are you looking for when you're reviewing those um, what cues you into like you know this is this is good intel i'm gonna write this down or, or what are you throwing in the dump um, kind of everything to be, it's on, I'm honestly embarrassed how many cards I have on my desk right now. Um, <laughs> it's usually chaos. So I have the little SD card things that are the readers you can go into your phone. And yep. so I have like four of those and I have one of them, like I have one in my truck, I have one in my pocket. Cause I, I never know. Like I was a little disorganized during the, the middle of deer season. So I always have one of those with me cause you can check those on the fly. So you're walking by camera, boom, you can scroll them real quick, check. And so that's one way I do like to switch the cards out completely. And, uh, that way I can take that full card that I took out and I can go home and get on my big computer and start going through things kind of more, uh, methodically. And so that's one thing for sure. And a lot of times too, like with the standard cameras, uh, we talked about a little bit, like you're kind of hunting in the past. If you are like trying to like make a game plan on what already happened, but if you know of a deer, like, okay, he showed up in the second week of October and it's great. I think based off last year, he's going to be there the last week of October. I'm going to be trying to set up. He's alive. He's there. He's in the area, try to set up on the next front. So like, that's one thing for sure. But a lot of them too, I literally just take the entire card and I have a folder for each location, each camp. I named the camera locations and I literally just take the entire, every single picture, boom, right in there. And, uh, I just like to be able to go back. Cause during like this season, I'm going to go back and look at all my cards from, let's say I'm going to hunt a farm, in the first week of October and I'm going to go through and I'm going to see what happened there last year during the first week of October. I want to see what does were in there. Where were there does in there every single night? What bucks were there? And I think that with how, you know, like how annual deer can act on a pattern, that is a, a really overlooked thing. And people are like, why do you want to save every single picture? Well, I, there's things that you pick up on for sure. No, it's, 
that's interesting. I uh, I used to just pull like daylight activity, but I can see a point for sure, especially getting into pre-rot and rut, why you would want to know what kind of doe activity was around. And it's one of those things I'm mean, hearing you say it now where I feel like you never know what you might want to look at. And if you delete something right off the bat, kind of kind of tough to get it back at that point. Yeah. And, well, and even that brings up to kind of that, that deer I screwed up on with the decoy. The, the year before I took the entire thing and I saw, okay, well, here comes the does. And then here comes that buck like five minutes later. Well, the does got me screwed the year after, but I knew they were coming. (laughs) And like in my mind, I was like, all right, well, here comes the does. Like he has to be close nearby. And I'm sure he was. So that's where, um, you just, it's just, I don't know. I've just seen it happen too many times to where you just having the full idea of what's going on. Um, it, I don't know, but it's just, you just always trying to put clues together. And it's like, well, maybe you learn something, maybe you learn something this year and then you can go back and look, and then you can connect something else that you never would have been able to connect before. Yeah. I, and I know a lot of guys, um, personally that are cross-referencing like weather data, they're looking at, did this buck show up on a certain wind? So what variables are you looking at? Um, this is something that I've been trying to get better at of looking what, so let's say a buck was in an area to go back on the historical, uh, weather data to see what wind he was using. And I think that's something that I can improve on. And I think, you know, talking to different people, that's something that seems to be really effective. Like, okay, this buck. Okay. So it's like this refining it. Like here's the top of the funnel. Okay. He's here. Was he here on a West wind? What time was it? Was it in the morning? Like in this, keep going all the way down. I'm like, okay, well, this is what we need. So that's something that I try to do um more so but for the longest time i looked at things more face value and maybe that was a fault but um i think coordinating where people think okay so he was there october 24th so he's got to be there again the next october 24th well it happened to some of these times where a front comes in at a very similar time too and so i think that's the biggest thing so it's like all right well this was october 27th was the big front and it's going to be october 23rd this year on the big front well plus or minus two days that's probably what you're gonna need to do yeah, that's it's worth probably rolling the dice. I'm a a big front hunter too. I like to take advantage of those whenever they come in, especially that late October time frame. It's so fun. Like I, I'm I'm already <laughs> I'm already geeked out on some of those fronts this year already. Oh uh, yeah, it's it's just around the corner. So well, we talked about it and alluded to it a little bit early on the annual patterns. So how much stock should hunters be putting in those? I mean, you talked, you gave a great example or two already where that's paid dividends for you. Mm-hmm. And again, from your own experience or the people that you've talked to, how consistent do you think that is? Super consistent. Um, really, really consistent in my opinion. And and that's on a lot of different farms, a lot of different locations. And um, it's not, I've seen it to where it's down to literally like the day, down to the time, down to the, everything. And I've also seen it where there's one deer that I'm, I'm hope that I'm hunting right now, actually. Um, he lives really far away, but he showed up around, I'll just say loose dates, in the second week of sure. November. And this past year, it was like five days later, and he stayed later. And so in that instance, it wasn't down to like the eerie, oh my gosh, like there he is, there he is. But it's still the same concept. And I think that probably goes down to how close you are to that deer's home range or where he's spending a lot of time too. I think probably as that expands out, it's probably less, um, you know, like it's less boom, like here it is. So I think just have that in mind. And, uh, the other thing too, in terms of annual data, a lot of times where I get velvet bucks, they will be back. So it's, if you have them like right now, so like it's August, one of my favorite card polls, and I'm a little behind this year. One of my favorite card polls is like now until the end of August, if he's there in velvet right now, and I know he showed up in the second week of November last year, you best believe I'm putting together a plan for that, that first or second week in November, whenever he was there the year before, because a, I know he's alive. B, I know what he did last year, and now you're anticipating what he's doing this upcoming season. And that, I think, is uh, really powerful using all those things together because you're not waiting like second week in November, like, all right, he's here. Well, it could be gone. He might have only been there for 48 hours. Yeah, no, that's a great tip for your summer survivors. If you get them all the way through to August, like you said, and you had them in that pattern last year, that's that's a real good tip. Mm-hmm. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that deer right now. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm look. I looked at the, I literally this week, I was like, uh, he was there August 26th last year. And I was like, all right, well, man, I really hope he's here. <laughs> yeah. So I, I've heard the annual pattern things mostly discussed in the context of the rut. Do you think there's any, um, 
does that carry over to let's say you know October 1st to October 15th or maybe late season when when deer are hitting food sources hard do you see anything there or is it mostly rut focused in your opinion I think it's I think it's the entire year honestly um we were just and this is an example outside from me this was uh was Skip Sly. So um, I think he, his podcast just went live today on the Exodus podcast. And he was talking about, a, we walked into his house and he had a giant shed. And I was like, what's the story this year? You're going to kill him? And he's like, well, ironically, he only shows up the, like the second week of December. And now obviously his farm has a bunch of food. So I think it is, I think everyone thinks that it is like, we as humans are also very on an annual basis, New Year's resolution valentine's day your birthday sure. like we do the same things year after year too on different points of the year uh first opening day of october like what are you gonna do you're probably gonna be bow hunting like so i think uh there's so many different factors that go into that outside of the rut as well yeah uh, i'd agree and uh again just from anecdotal experience my own experience it seems like that that stuff the annual pattern discussion keeps popping up so there, there's got to be something to it there's enough people saying that that and you know, and enough camera data now that that's proven it out. So yeah, uh, and I listened to a podcast too. I might have it in front of me. It was a, uh, I think it was the NDA podcast, and they did a. It was part of their study, and now they're like proving what we've been saying for so long. Like, oh yeah, deer do the same thing year after year, and it's not. It's like they move different core area areas too. And I think that's really prevalent in in different parts of the country where hab habitat change is so different. Like it's right now, there's sea of corn and beans. So sure. they're on this tiny little finger where they can be unbothered and have unlimited food and everything else. And then obviously as crops go out, they're going to move to these different. So I think it's just so dynamic, but a lot of it just repeats year after year. And that it, it feels more crazy than what it really is. Yeah. I, that's one thing that I'm kind of a nerd on is like, I like to learn as much about deer biology. And that's why I'm interested in that Penn state blogs. I think the more you understand the animal and its habits, like if you're a serious hunter, it definitely contributes to that overall picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and it's so cool too, that I feel like there's been, I don't know if there's more research that's being done or they are getting the platform to share the research that they've done to where people weren't reading, uh, you know, like scientific studies and reading the abstract to see if it's interesting. Now they got a podcast and they can talk like just you and I, and we can understand it. Better. Sure. Yeah. A lot more digestible for the everyday, everyday guy. hundred <laughs> percent, which yeah. is good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's not fun reading about coefficients of variation and all that stuff. Yeah. Trying to make sense yeah. of the the stats in there. Yeah, I've, I've read some of those studies as well, and it's uh, it's not e like I said, not easily digestible like podcast does. Yep, I agree. Well, let's talk about um, maybe putting too much stock in trail camera data. So I'd like to get your opinion on this as an extreme example. Let's say I find an area; it's got all the ingredients to be a big buck layer. And I only have one or two conventional cameras. I run them there for a few weeks and I'm not getting anything. Do I move on? Do I wait? Um, what are you doing there? And is it a is it a mistake to rely solely on that camera data? Um, I've, I've, I fell, I've done, I'll give you an example. And it's actually that big deer that, uh, that I got on camera running away. And so, as I, I was new to that area and I ended up, uh, the neighbor was awesome guys. I talked to him, uh, at least probably once every two weeks, just a really cool dude. And so I said, Hey, there's really big deer running around. He's like, well, how big? I was like really big. And then, so like <laughs> kind of like got through that. And then at that point he sent me an encounter he had not far from where I was at on the fifth, the previous year. And so mind you, I hunted there dark to dark on the second. Cause I knew he was in the area and I'm like, he's going to daylight. And so I didn't have enough conviction to hunt there the next day. But then after that happened on the third, I was like, all right, I'm gonna hunt the fourth, I'm gonna hunt the fifth, I'm gonna hunt the sixth, I'm gonna hunt the seventh. So I I truly hunted four dark to dark stands, like or hunts, like grueling. That's and tough. That's it's, tough. Man. It, I've only done it one time, and it was because that deer, I just like I had so much conviction in it, like, okay, I know the neighbor had an experience. Well, come to find out, he got shot like the fourth. So I wasted oh, no. <laughs> I wasted all that time. Stop there just, torturing yourself. I'm just out there grinding for no reason at all. And um, so like that's an example of of like maybe being more hard headed than what I than what, but like I felt like that was one of my best opportunities to kill a deer of that caliber, which re I really didn't have that high of an opportunity to begin with, but you gotta you gotta try it. So like uh in terms of yeah, I mean it's, it's a tough. That's a tough one. I still um, am frustrated with that one. Sure, sure. And, uh, well, let's talk. Let's talk about an area that you are running cameras pretty regularly. When do you pull the plug on an area? When when do the cameras tell you, or what are you looking for specifically that says 
you know, this, this area isn't what I thought it is. I'm going to get out of here. Time to move on. Yeah, this is, um, there was a podcast, uh, it was on the YTA Legacy podcast two years ago, and it was Heath Cisco. And Heath talked about his, basically his rut strategy and what he's doing. And his rule of thumb was like giving an area basically two days. Like, so for instance, you get a good trail camera picture and you think it's hot. So you hunt there for two days. And after that, you move on. And I think that's the same idea with cameras because you can get stuck. Like what I did, I wasted four days of probably the best hunting opportunity the entire year hunting a dead deer. And so I think that's something you really have to consider. And I think that's the importance of having a lot of cameras and having all those multiple annual data. Let's like, let's say you go in, you strike out, but you already have plan C, B, C, D, E, F, G, because you already have all these different things. So that's the strategy I have now to where it's like, okay, don't get married to a spot, move on, move on. And I think that's what most successful hunters really do. And that's something, um, you know, I, I try to adopt more so. And I, I go back and listen to that podcast with Heath every single year regardless because he just lays out what exactly like he he kills big deer every like he he doesn't necessarily like hunting the rut but he kills big deer during the rut every year so like what is yeah. he doing because he's doing something i'm not and so i really think that was a, a great example of that yeah and and i've definitely clued in especially that time of year that to the two or three days and uh, a personal example 2019 i had a south dakota archery tag and so did my buddy we didn't draw kansas that year so we bought south dakota tags and I got there a day before him. And one of the things that I always like to do is drive around all the areas that I've e-scouted, see what the crops are, see what the access was like. Is there any pressure? So I was driving around and, uh, I don't know, maybe an hour before dark, our tag was good for either, either species. So mule deer or whitetail. And we were in an area that had both. I saw two nice, really nice muleys, like, you know, upper one forties, real nice bucks that I would have been thrilled with cross the road from private and then parallel offense on the public. So I waited for him to get just out of sight, parked my truck, grabbed my bow, jumped out. And on the way to them, I jumped a really nice whitetail. I was like, holy cow, I'm in the gold mine here, right? There's, there's shooter bucks all over. Yep. So I talked to my buddy and that must've been November 6th. So I come back the next morning. Now my buddy's not going to get there till noon. And I'm just joking around. I'm like, yeah, Joel, I'll have one down by the time you get here. So I go back in the next morning and in my opinion, like when a deer's locked down with a doe, they hold real tight to an area and they're usually there for a reason. And my experience is like a water feature. They can pin the doe up against the water feature to keep that estrus scent away from other deer, or they got them in a fence line, like kind of out in the middle of the open. They end up in weird spots. And mm -hmm. I think it's to like, you know, keep that uh, doe from spreading estrus scent. That's, that's just my opinion. So I figured they'd be real close the next morning. I went back in there. And it was a terrible morning uh, for, and I didn't have a tree stand. It was in like a bunch of junipers. So I go in there and I'm, you know, it's like 10 degrees out. The, the, there's no wind. The grass is super crispy and I hardly ever call, but I'm like, if this deer is still locked down with the doe, I'm going to grunt. So I grunted one spot right by where I'd seen him the night before. Didn't see anything. I waited like 30 minutes. I moved up about 600 yards, grunted again and it's unbelievable that deer from the night before came right in and I shot it off the ground. Oh, that so, is awesome. Wow. Oh, it was, it was crazy, but I think, uh, I think it was there still because again, uh, deer biology, if you see a deer locked down with a doe, you know, you never know exactly how long it's been locked down with that deer, but if it's not yeah, breeding, yet, you probably, yeah, you probably got 24 to 48 hours and you better believe I'm going to be back in the same area when I'm seeing that kind of stuff. That's a heads up so, play. That's awesome. No. And I think that just, that's a great example of that time of year. If you're in a hot area, um, it is hot, like get back in there immediately. But I think they go cold just as fast as they heat up that time of year. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I've made my mistake wasting hunts on spots that were deader than a doornail. Cause you're, you're, uh, it's yeah, like, same. it's like, you don't want the party to be over. Like, Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, we talked about that. One of the last things I want to discuss, well, a couple more questions, but is, the ethics of trail camera use and specifically cellular trail cameras, you know, it's kind of a debated topic. So what's mm -hmm. your opinion on the ethical use of trail cameras and do your opinions change on what's ethical from bow season to rifle season? For example, let's say I got four cell cameras out around a bedding area and I go in there and I see, uh, I get this buck that I'm after on camera and I go in and a bow hunt. I mean, that's still a pretty tough mountain to climb, right? Even if you know the deer's there getting it done with the bow, that's tough. But now let's say in that same scenario, I go in 
during rifle season with driving party, right? Uh, is there a line there? What's the line for you? And and what do you what do you think about fair chase and cell cams? Oh man, that's a tough one. I I think it boils down to your own personal ethics and what you can live with for sure. Um, because it's there's obviously not super clear rules as of right now in the Midwest and like obviously a lot of states. I know they're getting banned in some states, but I think a lot of it comes down to what you can live with. And so I mean, I the I had one of the best encounters of my entire life this past year just because I got a cell cam picture of them in the middle of the night and I changed my plans the next day. And it was during gun season, but it, I long, long and short of us, he's on the neighborhood and shoot him. So like, okay, well, what's the ethical, like anyone else probably would have shot across the fence, but I wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for the sun. So like it all, it all kind of goes hand in hand, but I, I think, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I get stumped on. It. I, I think if, if you got a picture of a deer and you want to go and try to shoot them, go ahead. I think, where I'm at too, there's not necessarily big open ground in a Nebraska or type something else like that setting where you get a no or deer's in a draw with a cell camera and you have a rifle like that deer's dead. Um, so I just and but then it's like, would you get enjoyment out of that? If yes, then who am I to say what to do? If you wouldn't get enjoyment out of it, then then don't do it. I think because I think that's the other thing too. Like I hunt for me. I, I hunt for my own experiences. I hunt because I really enjoy it. I could, I, if, uh, if I didn't do what I do, I would still be doing exactly what I am now. And I would probably be a ghost with no social media. And that would, that's just the honest <laughs> truth of it. But like, sure. if you're, if you're doing that just for clout, then I think, well, yeah, maybe you shouldn't do that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great answer. And I, I tend to be, uh, pretty much whatever's legal and, and yeah, it's personal choice, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not bagging on guys if they're shooting deer for meat or shooting spikes, you know, like you said, it's for you. People don't have to hunt like me, and and if it's legal, I generally I don't have any problems with it. So, uh, like honestly, and not to get like down the rabbit hole, but in Illinois with with crossbows and how good they are now, we have a a four month shotgun season now, basically in in Illinois because you can use crossbow, you can shoot eighty yards. People do, and when I was growing up with an old crappy eight seventy. 80 yards was a poke. And so now it's like 80 yards is just another day. You can go grab your, your crossbow after work and go out there and hunt. Like to me, that's doing way worse, um, on our like big buck population to be completely frank than what cell cameras are in this area. So, I mean, that's, that's where I stand on it. Sure. No, I appreciate your insight on that. Cause that's like I said, kind of a, a topic that can get people riled up. So appreciate yeah. the forthright answer there. Yeah. Crossbows are legal. If I wanted to go shoot a, I honestly, I would have bucked out on two ginormous deer back to back days, November 6th, November 7th here in Illinois, if I had a crossbow, but I didn't. Yeah. And it's yeah. just like, I don't know. It's just, it wasn't what I want to do. And that's, uh, so if someone's listening with a crossbow, I, I don't hate you. It's just, a personal, yeah. it's just a personal thing. Yeah. And I, I think I'm in the minority here, but I like to lose sometimes. I say this quite often too. <laughs> if I went out and I got a deer every single time, honestly, it would lose the appeal for me. So yeah. I've got to lose a fair amount of time. I mean, of course I want to succeed, but ideally it'd be like on the last day of the season every year and just barely. Yeah. I mean, it's part of the <laughs> grind and you learn, you learn along the way. And if you don't, it, I don't know, it's, it's what I love about it. So I'm not going to change it. Sure. Uh, and Jake, this is the first time you've been on my podcast. One of the things I like to close with, uh, sometimes not always, but give me two or three of the biggest mistakes you made early on in your use of trail cameras and let's, even hunting in general. Mm-hmm. And how do you know that those are mistakes now? And what would you do different, you know, giving advice to somebody again, just getting started. One thing that, uh, not necessarily trail camera dependent, but I used to waste so many hunts. Oh, like access, like with this dumb access, like accessing in the morning through ag, just thinking like, well, I got to get out there and so dumb. I've wasted so many, so many, so many hunts, a good hunts probably by thinking I have to be out there before the sun rises and get in there early. In reality, if you go in there and you can glass and creep in and get set up for that late morning movement, especially in the rut, that is something that I have learned, um, the hard knocks of, or just the impact of pressure with crappy access. That is something that I definitely, uh, made a ton of mistakes with in terms of cameras. I would say checking them too often. I think they're fun. Like they're really, they're addicting to check. Like if I'm, I'm out and about and they're fun to check. Like, so that was something I checked them too often and probably to the point of diminishing returns. So that's something that, um, it's a product of getting busier with life, but I don't check my cameras as often. I think that's probably a good thing. Um, 
yeah, but it's still fun. Like I still like there's a camera. Sure. Uh, there's a camera outside my house that I just put up and I was like, I will check it so bad. I put a water hole in. I was like, I'm curious <laughs> if any deer have hit it yet, but I'm not going to. So I think that's uh that's something for sure. But access, uh checking cameras too often. And um I would say those are probably the the two uh biggest mistakes. And the other one is probably not following my gut. I always tell people to follow your gut. And uh I think sometimes over calculate things, over try to complicate things. In reality, it's like just follow your gut, don't question it, and and uh, if it doesn't work, there's another day, and life will go on. I think you get people you get so caught up in not trying to fail and like trying to be so methodical because that's that's what everyone we talk to, they're like, well, I went up first time, shot the big buck right off his like it, it's almost glorified, but you didn't hear the ten years where they screwed up every single hunt, and I think you have to do that in order to get good. And so I think uh, another thing, just I've gotten more comfortable with failing in the whitetail woods, which is you know hard yeah and in the age of social media too especially it's just like every time you get online someone's got some giant buck and it's like <laughs> you don't know the backstory to that or you don't know how long that guy's been hunting or like I said how many times he failed it's easy to get discouraged sometimes and and yeah. that's just not reality right for for anybody i don't think no yeah and if they're telling you different i don't believe them I, shooting, shooting mature bucks hard like i i don't know why we try to make it seem like it's easy but to me yeah. it's hard yeah same, <laughs> same. so uh, and then give me your top two or three things for someone that's getting started using trail cameras this season. What's your three best tips? We covered some of these, but just maybe rehash those. Yeah, I would say number one, buy good cameras. And that's not just me saying that because that's what we do. And we manufacture, I think, the best cameras available for the price. Everyone brags like, oh, man, I, I bought this camera for X dollars. I was like, well, that's great, but what happens when it's only October once a year? It's only November once a year, and when that camera's not working, then you just lost an entire year. And I think that's um, just have full conv- conviction in the equipment you're using. So having a, a good camera that you can rely on is probably uh, one of the, the biggest tips, I would say. And then the other, um, use lithium batteries and, and hang your cameras with intent. And don't half-ass it would probably be the 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 quickest, easiest way to say it. No, great tips there from a lot of experience. I know that. So appreciate it. Uh, that's, that's all I had, Jake. I want to give you a chance for people that aren't already familiar with Exodus, which that'd be hard to believe. But where can people find uh, your content and the Land Podcast? Plug your social media here. Yeah, so you can find everything at Exodus at exodusoutdoorgear.com. Uh, we have a resource tab on the website too. So you can go in. Uh, we have three podcasts. The Exodus podcast which is every Tuesday. Uh, the Land podcast, which I host every single Monday. And um, that's a really fun project too. I really enjoy that. And then we have another one called the Deer Gear podcast. And then um, we have two different YouTube channels. The Exodus uh, YouTube channel, which has like whitetail cribs, um, a lot of the interviews that we've done over the past and some just tips and really good information. And then we have... Uh, the other one that's uh, just my my name, Jake Hofer, and that's a lot of like the land type uh, content as well. And uh, you can follow me on Instagram. It's at Jake Hofer, and uh, it's been a, it's been I've learned a lot. I look forward to all these conversations, and I, I really appreciate uh, the thoughtful questions here today. And it was a good to, good talk with you today, Jeremy. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And uh, for guys, like I said, if people aren't already checking out your content, you guys are doing first rate stuff all the time and consistently too. I have a hard time doing that with the uh, <laughs> nine to five, which is more it's like a nine to nine lately. So I noticed I like you, get... you were sending some emails late at nine. I was like, man, this guy's hustling. I yeah, it. it's been, uh, you know, not to get sidetracked, but I'm on a big project <laughs> at work and it's been eating up my time. People are like, why aren't you doing more podcasts? It's like, I, I wish I was. I'd rather be doing that. So I hear you. Well, hey, thanks again, Jake. Appreciate you coming on and uh, good luck this season. Thank you.